Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Well, from one perspective, we could say that catastrophizing thoughts, worrying, uh, hypochondria creates a false sense of security and preparation. There's this idea that if we can visualize the absolute worst possibility, that somehow we won't be caught off guard. And some of the earliest attachment disturbances in childhood happen when uh, we expected to get love, nurturing, attention and instead there were times where there was unavailability or a lack of attunement being seen or there was a disconnection. So the child very often around four or five years of age starts creating escapist fantasies as a compensation for lack of warmth and security but also can start visualizing worst case scenarios. We have ongoing difficult painful affects or emotions that are really uncomfortable arising that are triggered by all kinds of uh, events in our lives especially events that have to do with disappointing interpersonal outcomes when we expect approval from someone and we get criticism and we expect to connect with someone and they become unavailable when we feel isolated generally The brain is set up in times of uh, dislocation, disconnection. There's a circuit in the anterior cingulate cortex to create emotional pain. Well, that's fun. It was essentially instilled throughout our evolution as a way to goad us, push us, incline us to connect because that was our greatest survival. That's where our species thrived. That's what shaped our brains was the possibility of bonding with others. So when we would prioritize accumulating resources for ourselves and not connect enough with other people, the over enough uh, millennia of evolution, it became clear that such individuals would die off because when your tribal bonds fall apart, nobody's taking care, protecting you, you're not sharing resources, you're vulnerable. When we are disconnected, there's emotional pain dispersed throughout the body. It's feelings of mounting anxiety. It's an attention that won't settle. It's constriction in muscular areas associated with the ventral vagal that run down the front of the body. There's a whole host of expressions of anxiety and insecurity that can happen. And in the left hemisphere, generally don't like dispersed feelings that are very vague. It likes the certainty and the sense of control that thought ideation offers us. So it takes these underlying feelings of unease, of vulnerability, insecurity, loneliness, anger, frustration, and it translates them all into a kind of representation, a thought. And that thought essentially acts as both a distraction and a representation of all the underlying feelings. The single 
thought that repeats itself in the mind over and over again is a representation of a variety of unconscious states and emotions and feelings, repressed inclinations. Freud said that it's not just fears and aggression that we repress, we also repress desires that are unacceptable to the society that we live in. So the more we repress out of fear will be judged and also the more feelings we repress associated with the pain of abandonment and rejection and lack of love and lack of connection in our lives, then the more we become susceptible to catastrophizing thoughts. They distract us from the psychobiological unease and they also create a sense of control and mastery. They offer a sense of protection where, uh, or a sense of security where there is none. So let's look at a couple of specific examples so you can get an idea. By the way, this, I, this uh, story that, um, or, con or um, concept that one idea can represent a multiple array of emotional drives and impulses dates back not just originally to the Buddha who talked about uh, how feelings condition and all of our thoughts and drives come from these vague feelings. But um, it's also was mentioned in Freud. Freud said that uh, all of our uh, obsessions, our symptoms are essentially these kind of like signifiers that represent a whole wide variety of unconscious impulses, fears, desires that have been repressed. And he called that uh, overdetermination, in case you ever want to look it up. The idea is each thought that we repeat or each dream uh, event or each slip of the tongue is actually uh, a symptom of many, 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 many different unconscious uh, issues. So hypochondria, very often the fear of having an incurable terminal illness, uh, meets a lot of unconscious, buried, unacceptable social impulses. One wrapped up in it can be a desire to escape from all our responsibilities, because that would be a ramification of having an illness. It, can be a way to visualize getting attention from other people who otherwise we feel are not uh, offering us sympathy. If I was sick, then I would get love, then I wouldn't have to go to this job, then I wouldn't have to take care of my uh, child, then I wouldn't have to. And while we don't like to admit that we have these impulses of just wanting to escape our obligations, that we want to get attention at all costs, that we uh, at times just want to disconnect from all of the relationships that are difficult and trying. But these are real human impulses. They're not mistakes, we all have them, but because they're so socially uh, shamed and rejected in our culture, the, we repress them, the ego represses them from consciousness and they become what the Buddha called anusayas, these unconscious tendencies that are just waiting 
for something in our life that to represent it. A great example in American culture was in the 1950s. During the Cold War, there was an enormous amount of tension between the US and the Soviet Union. There was between Khrushchev and Kennedy. There was a falling apart of relations. There was the appearance uh, or the development of the hydrogen bomb. There was uh, uh, militarization in Cuba. And there was a lot of belligerence. And on top of that, there was this anxiety in the American populace that the uh, gains that had been made after the Depression were not fully secure, that something bad could happen and the, the bottom could drop out. So you have all these different anxieties. So what did people do to represent consciously these feelings of insecurity? Any guess? That actually started to spike in the 60s, not in the 50s, but that's a great guess. Very close. Very, very close. Duck what? And cover? Duck and cover, yeah, but there was something. UFOs? Yes. Oh. Absolutely spot on. UFO sightings, it was a statistical rarity up until the 1950s, and UFO became the, uh, the metaphor that allowed us to consciously represent all of those unconscious anxieties that we would be attacked, that our security was uh, not as strong as we were, that we were not number one, that there was some you know, force up there or that was antagonistic to us. So catastrophizing thoughts work exactly the same way. They take something that is extremely unlikely, like uh, incurring a rare African disease that only uh, affects pygmies, uh, and yet believing that there's every likelihood that we have it, which represents all of our feelings of desire to escape our responsibilities. Jealous, jealousy. Now, jealousy, of course, can seem like a very uh, embarrassing experience to have, but jealousy represents a wide variety of attachment anxieties. When we fixate on one person and, the, and worry over the possibility that a rival will steal away their affection for us, it allows us to avoid a host of other issues in our lives. While we're jealous or preoccupied with an attachment figure, we don't have to think about the fact that we hate our jobs. We don't have to think about the fact that we are... are have tenuous relationships with our closest friends. We don't have to think about the fact that we are financially insecure, right? So this one fixation, the catastrophizing of my partner's going to leave me for someone else, allows us to escape and not acknowledge a host of other stressful uh, reflections or possibilities. Another common one I work with in counseling, all these I hear, by the way, all the time in counseling, so they're sort of top 10. Um, very often when somebody is broken up with an abusive ex, they can have catastrophizing thoughts of running into that ex out of the blue 
somewhere on the street and there's this mounting feeling of fear of terror and then they start avoiding entire neighborhoods um, even though consciously they realize that the chances of running into this person are minuscule they will still invite avoid all of lower Manhattan because they once heard that their ex was going there for uh, you know uh, food or something uh, So what, of course, this allows people to do is to represent all of the antagonistic, conflictual relationships they have with different people into one manageable figure. And it allows them then to engage in fantasies of avoidance or all the, uh, all the cutting remarks they would say if they did encounter their ex. So essentially, it allows us to avoid a whole host of damaged or relationships that need attention to address. So you're getting the idea that catastrophizing thoughts uh, allow us to avoid both multiple physiological feelings that are uncomfortable and they also allow us to uh, sidestep or distract ourselves from mounting challenges that do need our attention. Uh, other needs that catastrophizing can meet is that uh, in anxious attachment, catastrophizing is very common. People who have anxious dispositions stemming from early attachment wounds, um, that can create a need for reassurance constantly, a need to have, uh, to get the experience of having someone essentially comforting us as a compensation for those early lack of care. So, Reassurance can be very addictive. The problem with reassurance is when somebody says it's not going to happen, you, you don't have, you know, um, some rare disease. You don't, uh, you're not going to run into your ex. He moved to Philadelphia five years ago. Uh, you're not going to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you're not going to lose your partner. They're, they, they, they are committed to you. The problem with reassurance is it doesn't address the underlying wounds, the underlying challenges, so it doesn't essentially create any alleviation. It creates a momentary sense of being important enough to, that somebody will reassure us, but if you've ever sought reassurance, about an hour or two later, the dopamine recedes, the serotonin starts to fade, and once again, there's the unresolved issues that triggered the catastrophizing thought, and once again, we're back in the cycle of, uh, I, you know, uh, I, I, everything's going to fall apart. There's a feedback loop to it as well. Uh, essentially, given that physical and rep uh, states of unease, discomfort, hypervigilance activates catastrophizing, it, we represent the feelings as an idea, but interestingly enough, thoughts can then re-trigger the amygdala that can then re-trigger more physical insecurity. So the more we replay a catastrophizing image in our mind, rather than making us at all more secure or prepared, it does the exact opposite. 
each time we visualize stumbling across an abusive ex or each time we visualize somebody vying for our partner's attention or each time we visualize ourselves uh, you know facing a doctor who's giving us horrific uh, diagnosis it re-triggers the midbrain which re-triggers physiological stress which then re-triggers the thought so it, uh, it loops it's a loop that uh, it, we were not designed to self-soothe by evolution we were designed if anything to stay worried uh, because uh, we essentially evolution's primary job is our survival so if there's any uh, any question it will always opt to have us worried rather than to uh, cultivate states of rest and digest so uh, <coughs> given the fact that these symptoms which we could refer to catastrophizing thoughts and um, uh, hypochondria are distracting our awareness from physiological tension and unresolved issues in our life that are very painful even when we know even when somebody tells us the catastrophe is not going to happen that we're safe that we're not going to lose our job that we're not going to go bankrupt that we're not going to come down with that we're not you know uh what dying or whatever uh, at the moment um it uh, will not alleviate very often the symptoms because then we're stuck with this whole array of painful feelings and unaddressed concerns and even though we know logically consciously that the catastrophe is really not likely to happen very often people will still go back I've had uh, worked with many people who for a while will be absolutely uh, triggered by a the end of a very very short-term relationship uh, that obviously triggers deep abandonment uh, disturbances from childhood where they were abandoned by one caregiver and they feel deeply wounded but then even after we do the work of grieving and feeling the sadness for the original attachment losses the person still goes back and thinks obsessively about the person who broke up with them and tries to figure out ways to get back his or her attention because it's so much more preferable than thinking about the fact oh I hate my job my best friend isn't returning my calls I haven't produced any creative artwork in a long time and I'm feeling kind of overwhelmed in my life so it just becomes kind of pleasurable to go back to the warm melancholy distraction um, Dan Wagner, a great psychologist at Harvard, showed that the more we try to suppress thoughts, the more they rebound and become, uh, essentially, in, they intensify. This is, one of, is known as the ironic process. And it's simply put, when you try not to think about something, a catastrophe, uh, a, a frustrating thought, a worry, if you try not to think about it, you're actually creating a system in your right hemisphere that says I have to be on the lookout for that thought in order to not think about something you have to create a process that looks for the very thing you don't want to think about mm -hmm. 
And guess what that process does? It re-fucking-triggers the thought. So Wagner's research shows, showed, as I love to, uh, I love telling the story, but with the polar bears, he told people not to think about polar bears. And, um, if, when, and if you give people permission to think about polar bears, they'll push a button a certain amount of times. But if you say, don't think about polar bears, guess what? They'll push the button almost twice as often. So it's actually better when you have an obsessive, worrying, depressing thought, the first thing to do is don't try to push it away. Runs completely contrary to common sense, but the more you try to repress a thought, the more it rebounds, the more prevalent it becomes, the more prevalent it becomes, the more ambient physiological stress, the more somatic markers that are triggered by the thought, the more you'll believe the thought is likely to happen. Because the combination of a repetitive thought and physical stress beneath it are all we need to start believing even the most ludicrous ideation. So the Buddha had a wonderful uh, also uh, proposition about catastrophizing thoughts. He stated that Part of the problem is that we identify with these perceptions of ourself having very unique individual selves that are completely different from other people. We like to focus on what separates us and we like to fixate on that which sets us apart. So when it's negative, we call them our symptoms, we pathologize ourselves, and when they're positive, we think of them as our accomplishments and our, our unique skills. But this fixation on what makes me different from other people actually creates what the Buddha says, papancha, repetitive, obsessive thoughts that have to do with ourselves being vulnerable over and over again, because the price to pay when we fixate on what makes me unique, uh, the fixation on what sets us apart, uh, essentially uh, plays into a state of vulnerability, a state that we will not be cared for if something bad happens, which creates a greater likelihood of catastrophizing. And this is actually seen because, interestingly enough, there are many cultures where instead of when people define themselves, they don't define themselves in terms of what is unusual about them. But actually, when, if you ask somebody who grows up in many Southeast Asian countries and Eastern countries, Bhutan, tell me about yourself, they'll first talk about the friends they're affiliated, the teams they follow with other supporters, the workplaces and the people that they're connected with there. So they actually think of themselves in terms of teams and affiliations. And guess what? When they do clinical research, there's far less obsessive catastrophizing ideations in such cultures because they're less wedded to the idea of how I'm so unique and so different. Now, before we go into the ways that allow us to address, um, I would be remiss if I didn't note that if you do 
uh, experience constant intrusive thoughts, uh, repetitive cyclical ideations. They generally go hand in hand with insomnia uh, and anxiety disorders. If you do have that, while all of these tools will work, uh, it shouldn't be thought of in terms of the solution is only spiritual. There is so much clinical research that shows that there is an element, it's not the only factor, but there's an element of what's called hypofunction in the basal ganglia that happens when people uh, have anxious dispositions and have repetitive uh, ideations and insomnia. And one way to address amongst many is uh, any kind of serotonergic reuptake inhibitor, commonly known as SSNIs and SSNIs, serotonin reuptake, norepinephrine reuptake. Anyway, you get the idea. SSRIs or SSNIs, they do work. In fact, it's been found in over 65% of people with uh, obsessive ideations experience significant reduction in symptoms when they go on the proper medication. So don't think of the solution as either or. If you go to any good psychiatrist, they will tell you to both engage in uh, uh, stress reduction techniques, which we'll talk about. They'll talk about going into therapy, but they'll also talk about the right proper use of medication. So don't look for only one solution in your life. The more you tackle any problem from a variety of, with a variety of tools, the more likely you are to experience significant um, amelioration, right? So in the Buddha's teachings, the Vitaka Santana, which means the removal of distracting thoughts, Sutta, and the Sabasava, which is the removal of obsession, obsessions, so who knew he was so practical? Uh, there's a wide variety of tools. The first uh, and most valuable tool is, as the Buddha noted in the removal of distracting thoughts, is to pull your attention away as long as you can from the distracting thought just enough to find the area in your body that is tight. Whenever there's a repetitive thought, by very nature, it'll activate the sympathetic nervous system and parts of the, va- the, the dorsal vagal nerve will get tight. Your stomach will get tight, your chest will feel hollow, your shoulders will contract, your jaw will lock, your feet will start tapping. Something in your front of your body will start expressing the fact that you're in a state of alert. That's what, you're, that's what evolution has set us up for. So when we are in a state of vigilant, repetitive, obsessive thoughts, there's going to be a physiological change and it's going to be one of contraction of muscles and there's also going to be dystonic movements, which means essentially you do a lot of things that you're not in control of. You'll start fidgeting with your hands, you'll start tapping your foot, you'll start grinding your teeth, you'll start doing something with your hands. It's just what we were set up to do. When we are activated, when we don't feel safe, we are, by 
just natural selection set up to start mobilizing, moving, getting prepared for action. So something in your body will be tense. Generally, in my case, when I get triggered, my stomach gets tight. So the first thing I do is the body, as the Buddha said, is relax. Relax whatever is tight or stressful in the body. The more you relax the body, soften the belly, extend the length of your exhalations, which puts on your vagal break, the more you're going to take yourself out of sympathetic state and move yourself back up into rest and digest. Always start by working with your body and your feelings first, because that's actually what triggered the thoughts. You're going to the cause. You're not preoccupied with the symptom. You're actually addressing the fact that catastrophizing thoughts represent physiological somatic discomfort. So we're actually going to relax them first. The second thing we would do then is, the Buddha noted, and this was backed up by Dan Wagner, the most skillful way to deal with a repetitive thought after relaxing the, the body presentation is to find something else to think about that is not tr triggering, that is not going to activate or re-trigger the sympathetic nervous system, the amygdala. And so what kind of thoughts are those that are safe to think? Well, anything that doesn't have to do with you in the future. You and the future are the ma magical, miracle ingredients of suffering. <laughs> the default mode network, which is deeply implicated in stress and suffering, loves to think about you and unknowable. So the, its favorite flavors of misery are, what's going to happen to me in the future? What do other people think about me? How am I different? Why am I not matching up to other people? All of these answers are unknowable. They are absolutely unknowable. They create, though, a sense of vulnerability, and they implicate self. And that's really all you need to get started. If you want to try it, you could try it at home. <laughs> just disconnect from everything you're doing and lie and just start asking yourself, I wonder what will happen to me in the future. <laughs> if you think I'm joking, Read the clinical study. The largest clinical study, Matthew uh, Killingsworth and Gilbert at Harvard, a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. They found that people are the most miserable whenever they disconnect and they allow their thoughts to wander. Inevitably what follows is they start wandering towards thoughts about themselves and how bad shit is going to turn out. <laughs> people are actually happier doing things that they don't enjoy than just simply being bored at work and allowing their minds to wander. So, you know, you can go to the dentist and do root canal and you'll probably be happier than if you sit there and, you know, disconnected and start fantasizing about which people really like you. Um, so an absorbing distractor is simply something that you could do that you enjoy or something that uh, can occupy your attention, but in no way is an unresolved issue about self. So, I mean, one of the cl classic distracting thoughts that has been used for years, of course, 
in Judeo-Christian cultures is prayer. Why do people pray, pray all the time? Well, essentially what they're doing is they are repeating a thought that's not triggering over and over and over again in their mind. That essentially distracts them from all the essentially triggering, worrisome, self-related thoughts. It's not really that you're talking to some deity. You're simply giving yourself something that's not triggering you when you repeat a thought. Buddhism has them as well. They metaphrases, may all beings be happy, peaceful and free. We in contemporary insight, like the phrase, I love you, keep going, I love you, keep going, hold your image, just in your mind, repeat that phrase. Essentially, it's giving you something to think about rather than the catastrophizing thought. Um, three, uh, the neuropsychologist Jeffrey Schwartz at UCLA, who uh, is a bigwig and OCD, uh, has shown that, uh, as the Buddha noted, just allowing the thought into your mind and labeling it, standing apart from it and just label it. This is a malfunctioning circuit. This is simply a repetitive thought that has ingrained itself, that is representing something other than what it's referring to. And literally, repetitive thoughts literally have neurobiological underpinnings. You think something enough, you forge neural connections from the frontal lobe to your amygdala, very long connections. They become ingrained, very easy to think about in the future. It's like skiing down a mountain. The more you ski down the same route, you start a trail. The more trails, the more likely you're to think that thought again and again. As Hobbes said, uh, neurons that fire together, wire together, the more you think, the more neural connections there's going to be. So after a while, you've got a circuit. It's a malfunctioning circuit. Um, accepting and allowing into the mind allows you to, dis, to at least disidentify from the thought, and it gives you a way to essentially view it from a different perspective. Pennebaker, another great psychologist at University of Texas, noted from clinical studies that if you write out the fears, just write out the fears without editing them at all. So, nobody likes me, I am going to go bankrupt, I'm not going to, I'm going to wind up homeless out in the streets where I'm going to be killed, and pretty much that's where all of my catastrophizing thoughts would go to. Uh, literally, this is one of my favorite, when I was, uh, this was about 20 years ago, it's kind of old, I, uh, had this catastrophizing thought that, um, uh, well, it was about 24 years ago. I know that because that's when I got sober and I had finally a decent job. Um, and I had this catastrophizing thought that I was going to do something and I was going to get fired. I was never going to be able to get another job again. And that I was going to wind up on the streets where I would be killed by a roving gang because... <laughs> We neurotic Jews don't just stop in the miserable. We go fully all the way to, to the, the most dire outcome. So I had that literally. That was like my constant companion whenever I would get a new job. Writing out fears has been shown to literally lessen 
all the markers of activation. Your cortisol goes down, which is the stress hormone. Your skin sensitivity goes down. Uh, dystonic behaviors go down. You stop tapping your feet as much, your breath. The, the vagal break goes on, so you're not breathing as fast. Simply writing out the fear. And the next thing you can do when you can write out the fear is you can analyze the fears and see how they're addressing unconscious unresolved issues in your life. I'll give you one of my favorites. I love talking about because when I talk about how insane I am, it completely uh, prevents you from thinking of me in any terms so like a guru or anything like that, which is a horrible, horrible thing. Don't believe in gurus. So I like to reveal all my foibles so that you will not do that. Uh, I am just another Buddhist teacher with my own flaws. So uh, when about 10 years ago, I got jury duty summons. And as all good New Yorkers do, I kept on dodging it, putting it off. No sense of civic responsibility whatsoever. Well, my civic responsibility I do from the, all the volunteer work I do, which I do a lot of, but I do not do civic responsibilities. So I uh, um, kept dodging it until finally they cornered me. I had to go in. And it triggered this obsessive catastrophizing thought of me being pulled in front of a judge telling him, I can't possibly, this is in my mind, of course, none of this is going to ever happen, but I had this repetitive thought of me in front of this emotionally distant, critical, antagonistic judge and me explaining that I'm a Buddhist, democratic socialist, I'm lefty, I would never put anybody in jail, I couldn't possibly serve on any jury, you must set me free. And I had this, and it was ludicrous, because I knew intellectually that you don't go in front of a judge, you know, that they just call you in, if they do call you and they let you out one day. But I had this fantasy. Well, as I wrote out the fears, they uh, went away uh, significantly. But as I looked at that obsessive thought, I realized that it indicated that I still had work to do in terms of my relationship with male authority figures. I grew up with a violent alcoholic father. My idea of male authority figures is completely negative. I don't trust them at all. I dislike patriarchy. I grew up, my, own, my family only established some sense of security when my mom started taking over and became effectively a matriarchy. So I have absolutely no trust in patriarchal systems. So the triggered was simply a representation of all the unresolved issues I had with male figures who had any possibility of having any authority of me over me. And I realized that I still had a combative disposition because with my father, the way I'd survived was to get into countless arguments with him to protect myself. And so I grew up and I continued that disposition in college. I was argumentative, always trying to show the professors that they didn't know what they were talking about. I don't have no idea how I wound up graduating. Um, but I realized from that that I had to address this underlying issue. And 
Sure enough, I did some therapy on it. I addressed those feelings that of lack of trust with male figures. And subsequently, I don't really have that kind of triggering because the trigger, the catastrophizing thought, was a representation of unresolved issues that I needed to address. So lastly, the most important thing to bear in mind is that... Um, uh, task positive activities are associated with a reduction in catastrophizing and the default mode network. People who do things like uh, woodwork, crocheting, knitting, embroidery, anything with your hands that focuses your attention outside of your body has been shown to significantly put you into the task positive circuits, which are dorsolateral. You don't start, you stop worrying about what's gonna to happen to you in the future. It's very skillful. Why do you think all the Catholics have the rosary beads and the Buddhists have the mala beads and they're just fingering each one and repeating a chant? So that's catastrophizing thoughts. Hope there was something that was interesting. Hope there was some, it was uh, worth hearing the talk. And now we're actually going to put the tools in practice in a meditation. So find a really comfortable seated position. How was jury duty? <laughs> I never did it. I actually, uh, <laughs> this is a true story. I, so I went there and I got called in to the to be on like one of those possibilities where you might get impaneled. And uh, they said, is there any reason why anybody here could not serve on this case? And I rose my hand and they said, why? And I said, well, it reminds me of another case that I'm emotionally involved with. <laughs> it was not a lie. It actually did. And so I got off. <laughs> and that's not the most Buddhist thing you ever heard, but whatever. I'm not here to be perfect. I'm just here to tell you how I get through this adventure. So, finding a relaxed, comfortable position, closing your eyes, and let's, let's start all the tools we have available to us to deactivate and make it more, uh, to give ourselves practices that will come in handy when we are caught in a cognitive loop. So just find that nice sense of balance. All you really need to do is have your head balanced over your sit bones. If that's not available, just make sure that your head's not slouching in front of your chest. It causes neck pain and it actually creates ambient stress and makes it more difficult for you to relax. So if nothing else, tip your head slightly back, like you're lifting your chin, looking at a very tall building you're sitting in a park and you're just drinking in the sun. And then just allow everything beneath 
the head to relax. So let's take a full in-breath into the chest and lift your shoulders like you're trying to touch your ears with your shoulders. And then as you breathe out slowly, ever so slowly, circle your arms back to open up your chest. And that actually, we're doing that for a reason. We're actually pulling ourselves out of a contracted, closed off chest, the startle position, opening the chest, helps put the vagal break on, helps slow down your heart beat, your circulation, blood pressure. Just keeping the chest really open and just allowing your arms to fall lifelessly either onto your lap or by your side. Now another full in-breath and pull in your belly or push it out. Either way, make it really awkward, really pulled in tighter out. And then as you breathe out, soften the belly. And the abdomen is where your vagal nerve ends. And so much of the states of vulnerability, insecurity, stress is articulated right there, that tight belly. So see if you can just breathe into it, soften it. And now for the third in-breath, squinch the muscles in the face, lock the jaw, squinch the eyes, the nose, make an ugly little pinched face. Nobody can see right now. And then breathe out. Release the jaw and soften the micro muscles around the eyes. This is your ventral vagal. The nerves involved in the relaxed state of rest and digest, approach, engage. So we're really checking off all of the three principal signatures of your nervous state. And now what we're going to do for a while is we're just going to sit and we're just going to focus on keeping our out breath, our exhalations as long and smooth as we can. A good way to start is just by counting the in-breath and then counting the out. So if you breathe one, two, three, four in the in-breath and on the out, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You want your out-breath to be twice as long as you're in. And eventually when you find that rhythm, stop counting and just see if you can maintain a breath that is as long and smooth, an out-breath as long and smooth. While your in-breath raises your blood pressure, raises the heart beats, the longer the out-breath, that's the vagal break that actually deactivates all of the above. So the more time you spend breathing out, 
the more relaxed, the less cortisol. Just long half-breaths. And if you find yourself wandering away from the breath, you need more to stay present. Listen to all the sounds that are happening while you breathe in and out. The car horns from the street.
So, at this time, I invite you to have a sense for how you're feeling. Is your stomach soft, pliant? Is your chest open? Is there a lot of room for the breath? Is your jaw relaxed? Your muscles around your eyes soft? Your shoulders feel like they are in a relaxed, open position. So now, bring to your mind a worry that is familiar. You'll find actually that if you invite a worry in, it is far less triggering or activating than if you wait for it to catch you unprepared, and we're going to be actually prepared in skillful ways. So is there any worry, health, money, attachments, an unresolved conflict that you've been avoiding addressing that keeps repeating in your mind with a roommate, co-worker, family member? What uh, resentment keeps playing in your mind? Resentments are very common. Repetitive, intrusive thoughts. Very similar in ways to catastrophizing thoughts. So any thought that is intrusive and repetitive and sticky, just invite it. Now, if the thought is predominantly visual, imagine that those visuals are being projected onto a screen in your mind, but there's lots of space around the images. Like you're in a movie theater with a small screen. You can see the movie, but there's a lot of space around it. So keep the image contained within a lot of space. You're not pushing it away. You're not allowing it to consume all of your awareness. If the repetitive thought is more like a series of words, what if this happens, what if that happens? Just imagine again that it's words that you're hearing in a room, but they're not the only words. Hear the sounds of the cars drifting up, horns, the sound of the water and the pipes. So keep more sensations available than just the triggering repetitive thought. And while the thought, whatever it is, is present, resurvey the front of your body. See if your belly has tightened even slightly. Breathe into it and soften it. If your chest has grown a little tighter, open it up, pull the shoulders back and down. If the jaw has locked or the forehead has creased, just breathe in, soften. You'll find that if you relax the body, that 
so much of the strength and power of any repetitive, intrusive thought dissipates because it's actually fabricated by stress. You remove the stress, the intrusive thought becomes less adherent. And now what we're going to do is, if the thought is primarily visual, then we're going to introduce a meta phrase, I love you, keep going. Allow the thought to be there, but just repeat in your mind, I love you, keep going. If the thought is more words and ideas, then visualize while those words are repeating someone that you feel safely connected with, someone who's uh, has expressed care and kindness towards you. Again, creating a skillful, distracting presence that is not triggering. Not pushing away the thought, simply adding to it a soothing phrase or a soothing image. And finally, knowing what this repetitive thought is, looking at it from a different perspective, what is it trying to communicate? Fears are often escapes from responsibilities or distractions from related, unaddressed, unresolved issues. They can express desires to disconnect from obligations, responsibilities, relationships. Think of the catastrophizing thought as a metaphor that's communicating unmet needs. From this perspective, it changes entirely the way we relate to our catastrophizing thoughts. They're not trying to tell us something really horrible is going to happen. They're trying to distract us from something that needs our attention.
And so, whenever you're ready, you can slowly open your eyes.